Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. My name is Chad. I am the senior pastor here. We are glad you're here with us. We're in Genesis 3 this morning, and we want you to follow along. We'll actually be looking at a number of texts along with it, but we'll begin and mostly spend our time in Genesis 3. With that said, turn with me to Genesis 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, and I'll read through verse 21. We looked at verses 14 through 19 last week, and we're going to look again at these texts, but go all the way through verse 21. And then we'll conclude next week in 22 through 24, really focusing on the exile from the garden next week. But turn with me to Genesis 3, look at verse 14. We'll read to verse 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be toward your husband but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Father, we pray that we would receive this as what it is, the word of the Lord, that your spirit would turn on the lights in our dark minds so we would understand your word, not just intellectually, but that we would understand it by faith, that your spirit would work in us such that we would hear your Son, speaking by the Spirit to His churches. Cause us to understand this great promise, the mother promise, the promise that gives birth to all other promises, this covenant of grace that you made with man that we see progressively unfold until it reaches its maturity in Christ. Help us to understand that and give thanks for your loving kindness to us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we return to our discussion of covenants. And if you've been with us through the series in Genesis so far, you'll remember that in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, I spoke about God's covenant with Adam. Now, if you weren't here for that sermon, you have, I'll give a little bit of a review to catch you up, but 
I encourage you to go back and listen to that. I laid some groundwork with regard to covenants there. In that sermon, I pointed out that Bavink, Herman Bavink, a Dutch reform scholar, rightly wrote that covenant is of the essence of true religion. When we speak about the relation between the creator of all things in Genesis 1 and the creature, we are thrust into discussing covenants. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the Bible reveals to us that God relates to man by way of a covenant. Just the Bible simply demonstrates that when God relates to us, he does so by way of a covenant. Covenants are solemn agreements between parties that bind the parties together. And those covenants have promises and obligations. They also have signs and penalties and rewards. And we looked at the covenant that God made with Adam in Genesis 2. And if you remember, I said it was a covenant of works. And what I meant by that is if Adam perfectly and perpetually kept God's law, if he obeyed God's voice always, then he would be rewarded with eternal life. Now let me explain that a bit. Adam was God's people. Now I know it might sound strange to say Adam was God's people. Wouldn't you say Adam was God's person? But Adam was God's people inasmuch as he's the federal head of all mankind. The representative of us all. Adam was God's people, and God was his God. The Lord dwelt with him, and he dwelt with the Lord. Adam was mutably or changeably holy and righteous. If he persisted in that holiness and righteousness, he would become immutably holy and righteous, unchangeably holy and righteous. And God would dwell with him forever and he with God. But if Adam disobeyed God, he would lose true righteousness and holiness and he would die. He would be driven from God's presence. We're going to look at that next week. He would suffer physical, spiritual, and eternal death. In other words, his body would die from dust he came to the dust he shall return. He would be spiritually dead born a child of wrath by nature, and he would be suffering eternal death, the second death, judgment in hell. The sacramental signs of that covenant with Adam were the two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which Adam shall not eat, and the tree of life, of which he may eat, if he is perfectly, perpetually obedient to God's voice. Now, as we walk through Genesis 3, what we saw was Adam rebel against God's law. Rebel not only against God's moral law in the sense of, you shall have no other gods before me, but rebel against God's positive law. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That thing which Adam would not have known had God not told him that. As a result of that covenant breaking... When he violated that law, he broke the covenant of works. As a result of that covenant breaking, sin and death came for us all. 
But this morning I want to look at a second covenant. A covenant of grace. A covenant of grace. And I want you to hear how the Westminster Assembly stated this in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7. If you don't know who the Westminster Assembly is, that is an English confession. Happens in 1646, right around there, that well summarizes what the Reformed Protestants were teaching on this. Listen to what they said. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, in other words, the covenant of works, He's made himself incapable of life by that covenant. The Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace. Now listen to this phrase. Whereby he, the Lord, freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. And promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life by his spirit to make that his spirit, sorry, to make them willing and able to believe. Now I want you to slow down and hear the central language where they define what a covenant of grace is. Listen to this language. Whereby he, God is going to make a second covenant, a covenant of grace, whereby he, God, freely offers unto sinners. No longer mutably and wholly righteous man, but sinful man, corrupt and guilty man, freely offers to him life and us in him, life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. Do you hear what's being offered? God freely offers unto sinners life and salvation. By Jesus Christ, that they may be saved. This is what makes the second covenant a covenant of grace. We are, listen to the language, freely offered life and salvation. We do not merit life and salvation by our works, by perfect and perpetual obedience. Rather, life and salvation is freely given. Further, God freely gives us life and salvation, listen to the language, by Jesus Christ. In other words, this covenant of grace is something given in another. Adam failed to keep God's covenant of works. He failed to keep God's law. Israel failed to keep it. We failed to keep it. In the covenant of works, Adam was to merit immutable righteousness and holiness. He was to merit eternal life with God In the covenant of grace, Christ merits eternal life for us. For us. We receive immutable, unchanging holiness and righteousness, eternal life with God on the basis of the work of another. In other words, we have a mediator between God and us. Adam had no mediator. We have a mediator. For all those after the fall of Adam, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now I set this up so you understand today that we're looking at the beginning of the covenant of grace. 
And I want to look at this in three parts. First, the promise of the covenant of grace, where God promises it. I want to look first at the promise. We'll look at that in Genesis 3.15. The promise of the covenant of grace, Genesis 3.15. Second, the recipients of the covenant of grace. We'll look at that in Genesis 3.20. And third, the rewards of the covenant of grace. We'll look at that in Genesis 3.21. So let's look first at the promise of the covenant of grace. Look at Genesis 3.15 with me. If you remember, God comes to Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he begins by cursing the serpent. And he makes this announcement, which I won't spend a lot of time on, because I'll spend some, we spent some time on it last week already. But he makes this announcement in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God is here making a covenant of grace. And what is the substance of that covenant? What's the stuff of it, if you will? What's being promised? Well, the serpent crushing seed of the woman. That's what's being promised. The substance of the covenant is the Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. It is a covenant of grace because now there is a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's a covenant of grace because we receive the reward based upon the work of another, freely given to us. In Adam, we're condemned for our sin. In Christ, we are rewarded for his righteousness. The rest of the Bible story, we will look for the coming of the seed of the woman. As we move through Genesis, we're going to be looking for the coming of the seed of the woman. We'll learn more and more about the identity and the work of the seed of the woman as we move through sacred scripture. The revelation of Christ will progressively unfold and become clearer and clearer. Think of the promise like moving from an acorn to an oak tree. I didn't come up with this analogy. But moving from an acorn to an oak tree. With an acorn, we have the seed form of the oak tree. Technically, if we want to be really technical, an acorn's the fruit and inside that is the seed. But anyway, with an acorn, we have the seed form of the oak tree, but it must mature into an oak tree. And as it sprouts, it grows and develops from a sapling into a mature oak tree. But the acorn, catch this, has not become something different in the sense that it's a different thing. It has not changed its nature. It has matured from one state of development to another. The same is true with the covenant of grace. The promise is the seed form. And we see it mature throughout Scripture until Christ comes. So let's consider it a bit. And let's consider first his identity and then second his work. First his identity, look at Genesis 315 again, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular masculine, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is this seed of the woman to come who will crush Satan. And this seed of the woman is a reference, obviously, to Jesus Christ in the first reference we get to him. 
This is the mother promise out of which all the other promises are birthed. This is the first gospel. This is the place in which we hear that this Messiah is coming from humanity. From humanity. From mankind. A second Adam. Now we're going to see that identity of that seed of the woman narrow from mankind to a kind of national status. So look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And verse 1. The Lord comes to Abram. More on that later. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. By the way, from the beginning of the curse through Genesis 11, we hear God use the word cursing five times. And now we see God using the word blessing five times when he comes to Abraham. That isn't incidental, but we'll get to that when we get to Genesis 12 sometime in the fall. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Look what he goes on to say. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Namely, in Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, in Genesis 12, we're getting the promise of Abraham's covenant. In Genesis 15, you get the cutting of Abraham's covenant. In Genesis 17, you get the sign of Abraham's covenant or circumcision. But we get that covenant promise that he will be a blessing to all families of the earth narrowed down most specifically in Genesis 22 when Abraham goes up on the mountain, look there, up on the mountain with Isaac to sacrifice him. And you guys know the story of God providing the ram in the thicket. Let's look at the scene right after that happens or right when that happens. Look at Genesis 22 and verse 17. The Lord comes to him and says, because you haven't with your hold your son, your only son, look what he says in verse 17, I will surely bless you And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You guys catch that? So there's more to say there again. But I just want you to see the narrow focus from humanity to now Abraham's family. And what we know about Abraham's family is... Abraham's family is going to grow into a great nation. At the end of Genesis, there's 70 members in the family. When you get into Exodus, it's now a multitudinous family that is a nation that we call Israel, that God calls Israel. So this seed of the woman is going to come from humanity. This Savior, this Messiah is going to be the seed of the woman. He's also going to be the seed of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham from the nation of Israel. Now, Go to Genesis 49, we'll get to the end of this book, and we'll see the seed of the woman become even more specific. As Jacob, now in Egypt, via Joseph, blesses his sons. And as he blesses his sons, he comes and blesses Judah. And look what he says to Judah in verse 8. By the way, just as a real short note, Genesis 49, 1. The very last phrase in the ESV, what shall happen to you in the days to come, is the first use of in the latter days. Better translated, in the latter days. In other words, we're being told that Jacob's blessing 
that he's going to give here is actually pointing to the eschaton, the last things. There's way more to say there, but that's the beginning point of it. Now look what he says in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You guys notice that kind of language? Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouches a lion and is a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. So again, a lot more to say here. All I want you to pick up on is the seed of the woman, humanity, the seed of Abraham, or the offspring of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the offspring of Judah, from that tribe, you see the developing promise of this coming Messiah narrowing. Now, as Israel departs from Egypt and heads to the promised land, you all know they come to the promised land. They come in, and they begin to conquer it under Joshua. They don't conquer it all, and they begin to commit sin, and we see the book of Judges as there's a cycle there until we finally get to 1 Samuel, and they start saying, we want a king like the nations. They get Saul, uh, which is not a good king from the tribe of Benjamin, supposed to be from the tribe of Judah. And in many ways, Saul is unfaithful. And eventually the Lord appoints, if you will, a king after his own heart, King David. Again, now here's what you need to know about King David. He's a human being. He's from the nation of Israel, from Abraham, offspring. He's also from the tribe of Judah. God makes a covenant with him. Now go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want you to look down at verses 13 and 14 explicitly as the Lord tells David about the covenant he's making with him. Well, actually, let's start with verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, again, there's much more to say here about what's being said about Solomon, typically of Solomon and antitypically or fulfilled in the coming messianic figure which is clear in the prophets. In other words, you say, isn't this speaking specifically to Solomon? Yes, and it's pointing you forward past Solomon, or through Solomon, really, to the Christ. We know that because when we get to Ezekiel or Jeremiah, they tell us that David is going to return and sit on his throne when David is long since dead. Because they're picking up on this covenant promise that not only is this seed of the woman a human being, the second Adam, not only is he coming from Israel or Abraham's offspring, not only is he coming from the tribe of Judah, but he's coming from the house of David. The house of David. Now, look at Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. I want you to see, if you will, the acorn as it's developed become a full oak tree. Luke chapter 3. Luke gives us a genealogy in the opposite order of Matthew. 
In Matthew, you get a genealogy. Actually, the book of Matthew is telling as well. Matthew 1, the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then you walk through how he's the son of Abraham, the son of David, and it begins in that order, starting with Abraham and moving to the Christ. In Luke, we begin with Joseph, or Jesus and Joseph, his father by marriage, and we move through all the way to the end, all the way back to Adam, and end with Adam. But look at verse, I'm just going to pick out a few names. Look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now he's going to go through these names in Joseph's family. He's going to take you all the way back. Look at the very end of verse 31. The son of David. Look at the end of verse 33. The son of Judah. Look at the end of verse 34. The son of Abraham. Are you guys tracking with me? Now go all the way down to verse 38. The son of Enos. The son of Seth. The son of Adam. The son of God. That's who he is. This son of Adam, this son of Abraham, this son of Judah, this son of David has come. And his name is Jesus. It starts out in a seed form and grows into this full oak tree. That's his identity. That's his identity. Now let's consider his work. Go back to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Again, I'm not going to get into the fullness of his work, but just show you a bit of how it develops. We're getting the acorn of his work, not the oak tree in his life, death, and resurrection. Look at Genesis 3.15, the last phrase. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. We've already read and talked about the fact that Christ is the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. He will conquer and subdue Satan. But there's more to this text. How will he conquer Satan, sin, and death? How does that take place? Well, look there. You shall bruise his heel in some way. In some way, the serpent will bring harm to the seed of the woman. Now, we'll see what that looks like at the cross. But this is giving us, again, the seed form of Satan's opposition to Christ. And Satan's opposition to Christ will come from Satan's temptation of the Christ when he first comes to him to tempt him after his baptism. And it'll extend all the way to Satan's apparent victory over the Christ on the cross, apparent victory. We're hearing the seed form of the Christ shedding his blood. We can see that even more in Genesis 3.21. Look down there quickly, Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God cut the animals. God cut the animals. Sometimes we just read right over that. God cut the animals and clothed them. He shed their blood and he covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Now we'll continue to see this develop 
in types and symbols, whether through circumcision as a bloody sign of the covenant, or the ram in the thicket with Abraham and Isaac, or the paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, or the sacrificial system, which meets its pinnacle on the Day of Atonement, we will continue to see the cutting of animals, the shedding of blood for the covering, the atoning for substitutionary sacrifice. And these types and symbols all four signify the Christ to come and his work on our behalf. Christ will conquer Satan through his obedience. Now, mind you, I said Satan's opposition to Christ begins at his temptation. He tempts Christ as he tempted Adam. And Christ's victory begins, his head crushing of the serpent begins at his temptation as well as he obeys God unlike Adam. And Satan's opposition continues through the cross. And Christ's obedience continues through the cross even to the point of death on the cross. So look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, and we're going to look at verse 5. And I just want you to hear how Christ conquers Satan, sin, and death. Here's what I do not want to do. I do not want to give you the impression that I'm going to exposit all of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This text is glorious and has massive implications for Christian doctrine, I'm not going to hit on all of them. Just look at 5 through 11 for now. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Incidentally, I think this is a reference to the messianic servant songs in Isaiah taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, this is where his victory over Satan is, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in history, the covenant of grace begins in Genesis 3. But that covenant is administered in forms that are symbolic and typical. With that said, those symbols and types are really administering the same grace of God in Christ and by the Spirit that you and I receive. There's no other way to be saved, friends, than by Christ. No other way. From the time Adam fell, salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ is the surety the guarantor of the covenant of grace. But the administering of that grace, the administration, the giving out, the serving of that grace of the covenant is not suspended until some future date. Nor is this merely an announcement that someday, someday the grace of God is coming for Old Testament saints. The point is that that grace has come now. It's come for them. 
It has come in seed form. It's come in types and shadows, in signs and symbols, but it's here in the Old Testament. Christ is not just announced in these types and symbols. He is really present administering his grace to them by the Spirit. And Adam believes this gospel promise. He trusts in this covenant of grace. And that leads to our second major point today, the recipients of the covenant of grace. So if the substance of it, the promise of it is the Christ, his person and work, let's talk about who receives it. Who receives the grace of this covenant in Christ? Who receives it? If it's true that there's a covenant of grace in Christ, then how do I become a recipient of that covenanted grace? If it's true that salvation from sin and Satan and death are offered in the covenant of grace alone, then how do I receive that? What must I do to gain saving grace? Look at Genesis 3.20. Here's the requirement. Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, this is an interesting reply here. Adam's just heard the curse. And within the curse, Adam has heard the promise. And then note what Adam does right after he hears that. He changes the name of the woman. Changes her name. Do you guys ever just slow down? Just slow down and say, God made all these promises to me. I dwelled with him in true righteousness and holiness. He was mine and I was his. He told me don't eat from that tree. Satan came and tempted me. I ate from the tree. Now I'm condemned. I'm cursed. I'm going to die. God has just said that relations between me and the woman are going to be poor. Relations between me and the ground are going to be poor. And essentially the creation's been thrown into some kind of chaotic state in a way that it ought not to be. I'm going to die and I'm going to be judged. And God said this thing about the serpent being crushed by the seed of the woman. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change my wife's name. Is that what you think is going to happen next? So he changes the name of the woman. In Genesis 2.23... Adam names her Isha, woman. So he names her. Now he changes her name. What does he name her? We read there Eve in Hebrew, Hava. The Septuagint translates that as Zoe or life. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Prior to Christ translates that as life. In other words, Adam names Eve the mother of of all living. That's what he names the woman, the mother of all living. Why? Why change her name to that? What is Adam believing? Well, he's believing the promise of the covenant of grace. He's trusting that God will bring the Christ through his wife, through Eve. He's trusting the serpent crushing seed of the woman will come. He's trusting that. Adam is trusting the promise. He's looking to the coming Christ. This faith that we see in Adam, we also see in Eve. You'll see that especially in Genesis uh, 4.1, but we see that in Eve. We see it in Abel. We see it in Enoch and Noah and Abraham, and we could go on. 
And this faith is a gift. This faith is a gift of God's grace. As the Spirit of Christ quickens our hearts and minds to the ministry of God's word so that we believe to the saving of our souls. Adam believes in in the Christ of the covenant of grace and it's credited to him as righteousness. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 14 defines faith. They say this, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Now, Adam's response here is one of a living faith being expressed in an act of obedience. That's what true saving faith does. Saving faith bears the fruit of repentance and obedience as it works by love. But friends, it is not the faith nor the obedient acts of love that follow faith which justify Adam. It is that he received and rested on Christ. He received and rested on Christ's righteousness alone. Adam knew his failure. It can't be more clear than that. Thus, Adam trusted in another. He trusted in the coming seed of the woman. Now that leads to our final point, the rewards of the covenant of grace. And I want to argue that Genesis 3.21 is showing us the reward of the covenant of grace. And I want you to notice something right off. What have Adam and Eve done? Just ask this question. What have Adam and Eve done to merit any reward? God gave them all things, and what they do? Rebelled. So what have they done to merit any of this? They've done nothing. They're sinners. They've rebelled. Like you and me. You know what you've done to merit God's grace? Nothing. You're a sinner. You've rebelled against him. He's given you all things and you've turned in on yourself. Not listened to his voice. Rebelled against his clear law. And yet he's gracious to you. Adam and Eve rebelled. Yet here in Genesis 3.21 we see the Lord reward them. He rewards them. And this reward is on the basis of the gracious work of Christ. Look at Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, I want you to notice in a pattern in the overall text, something I haven't pointed to yet. In Genesis 3.14-19, in that passage of the curse, the creatures, the serpent first, the woman second, the man third, are passive as God speaks and acts. The creatures are passive as God speaks and acts in cursing them. It matches the passivity of the creatures in Genesis 2.18 and following, where the animals, the man, and the woman are last seen together passively as God is speaking and acting. And note how Genesis 2.23, look there, through 25 ends. Note there, then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So after God speaks and acts, Adam names his wife, and then we get this sort of editorial comment from the Lord, if you will, through Moses about marriage, and you hear this, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. After God acts, speaks, Adam names his wife, they're united, and we hear that they're naked and unashamed. They're walking with God under a covenant of works, but they fell into temptation of Satan and they sinned. Thus their state was now what? Guilt, shame, fear, and death. They attempted to cover their sin with fig leaves and hide from God. Then God speaks the curse. Together with the promise. And as this new covenant begins, as this covenant of grace begins, what does Adam do? He names his wife. And then we hear Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Like the last scene in Genesis 2, ending with Adam naming his wife and a declaration of their unclothed innocence, this scene in Genesis 3 closes with Adam naming his wife and a work of God in clothing Adam and Eve, covering their guilt, their shame, their uncleanness. God cuts these animals and covers them. This cutting of animals points to a covenant-cutting ceremony. And we see some kind of covenant administration assumed in the sacrificial system that Cain and Abel seem to know about. We don't know a lot about that, but they know they should sacrifice something. In which Enoch walked and in which Noah received grace, which we'll look at in Genesis 6. God is making a covenant with them, a covenant in which God is covering their sin by a blood sacrifice. Now, we see the acorn of blood atonement for the forgiveness of sins and the consecration of God's people so they might commune again with him in true holiness and righteousness. And we will watch that acorn develop until it becomes an oak tree in Christ in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit. Now you might ask a question. Okay, that sounds great, but how do you know this clothing is tied to atonement forgiveness and consecration and true righteousness and holiness how do you know that's just not a nice little theme that fits what you already want to say well because in this same five book scroll the torah the pentateuch the book of moses we learn that someone cannot serve as a priest and enter the tabernacle of god's presence while naked and the nakedness there is in your own sinful and guilty condition Listen to Exodus 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, as God instructs Moses about the people approaching his altar, listen to what he says in verse 26, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Or listen to the language as God commands Moses regarding the clothing of the priests who enter the tabernacle, where God dwells. Who enter that tabernacle. Listen to the language about the clothing in Exodus 28. Verse 40. For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. 
And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments, listen, to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. Here's why. Listen to why. Lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever and for, his offspring, for him and for his offspring after him. In Genesis 3.21, the Hebrew says that Adam was clothed with a tunic of skins. Clothed with a tunic of skins. In Leviticus 8.13... Aaron and his sons, or Aaron's sons, are clothed with tunics. Same Hebrew language. So they might enter God's holy place. You cannot enter the holy of holies where God dwells if you are not covered with new garments. Garments not your own. The garments that God clothes you with. Or you will enter in your own filthy rags if you will, you will enter naked and bear your guilt and die. Friends, your own good works outside of Christ are filthy rags. Your clothing has been soiled by sinful rebellion. You know you're unclean and unrighteous before our holy God. You know it. And Satan stands ready to accuse you of such. He is the accuser. Satan's wickedness is actually readily apparent in that he is ever ready to whisper in one ear about the delights of sin if you would just partake of it. And then as soon as you do, Satan is ever ready to stand and speak into your other ear accusations about your wickedness and unworthiness to enter God's presence. And the Lord stands ready to save you and clothe you with pure vestments. He alone can clothe you with true righteousness and holiness. Look at Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. This will be the last passage we look at today. But I want to see one of the priests, namely Joshua. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The same Satan who tempts man to sin stands at the ready to accuse. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. That's why he's being accused. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. 
And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you hear the grace here? Joshua comes before God in filthy rags. Satan accuses him. The Lord rebukes Satan. Is it true that Joshua soiled his own garments? Yes. But the Lord rebukes Satan and takes from Joshua his filthy rags and clothes him with pure vestments. It's all grace. All unmerited. Sovereign grace, if you're trusting Christ, then you have been clothed with Christ and his righteousness. Like the prodigal son who returned and his father had compassion on him and ran to him and placed upon him the best robe. So the father has sent Christ to seek and save the lost so that you might be clothed with clean white robes of Christ's righteousness. It's good news indeed. You've done nothing. He's done everything. In Christ, for your sake, may we trust him. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for Christ and his work on our behalf. We are thankful that in the face of sin and judgment, you graciously, graciously covenanted to save us in the seed of the woman, in his person and his work. We're thankful that you progressively unfolded that promise for us throughout the Old Testament until we meet its maturity, its fullness in Christ. In his law-keeping life, his sin-atoning death, his grave-conquering resurrection, and his ascension to your right hand to rule and to reign and to put all his enemies under his feet, to pour out his spirit so that we would have our filthy rags taken from us and be clothed with his righteousness through faith in his name so that we would await his soon coming return when the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet as well. May that come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.